December 1945. Hi, hello and welcome to Digging Up Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine the TV show Ancient Aliens to their claims hold water to an archaeologist or are there better explanations out there. I'm your host Frederick and this is episode 13 and we will break down the season premiere of season 2 called Mysterious Places. This episode aired on October 28th, 2010 and this one starts off with repeating a few things that we have covered pre- previously, especially back in episode 10 with Thea from For the Love of History podcast, and then goes into a completely un- different gear in the second half of the show. Well, um, you will find out what this is and more when you reach it. Remember that you can find sources, resources, and reading suggestions on our website, diggingupancientaliens.com. There you also find contact info if you notice any mistakes or have any suggestions. And if you like the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you left one of those fancy five-star reviews that I heard so much about. And as you hear, I am have a little bit of a cold, but it should be fine. I hope it's not too uh, off-putting for you. Well, enough of me jammering. Let's see what these mysterious locations might hold. So we have our intro section that they always have before the theme music where they're showing off what we will cover in the episode or most of it. And um, they say that some places have baffled scientists for decades. So, okay, let's see what they have to offer. And off the cuff, it seems as they're covering the Son of Silence, Gates of the Gods and Bermuda Triangle. And they... They are teasing you a little bit here because they show Stonehenge. So I was quite excited for a European monument, but well, we got fooled because there is no Stonehenge. I can save you that trouble. And they then wondering if some places might attract aliens more than others. We'll see, we'll see. So let's open up on the Bermuda Triangle that we covered with Thea in episode 10. There, This episode was, of course, before the Underwater Worlds episode, but they mostly bring up the same things, except for one key difference here, maybe. So they're talking about what area they claim the Bermuda Triangle covers, and they say from Miami, Puerto Rico, until... Bermuda, and we have Philip Coppens talking about a bunch of weirdness. We have Michael Barra, who claiming that ships um, show up empty at ports without any sign of struggle. And we have G&J Kassar, who claiming that, that ships disappear even though the weather conditions are supposed to be clear. And then we have the age-old claim that uh, equipment stops working here and that it's probably older than we might think. And they go back to the Columbus case that we covered in episode... What was it? Episode... Yeah, it must have been episode 7 with Eric Palmier. You should go back and listen to that one. But uh, Jason Martell claims that Columbus wrote in his journal that his compasses stopped work, which is untrue. I went and checked. Again, don't make claims on things that is easily, <laughs> easily able to look up today. Jason Martell also changes a bit of the narrative that we remember from previous episode, where we, where they usually claim that Columbus have seen this vague little light coming up of the uh, sea in the distance. And as we remember from earlier episode, Columbus do write that he see a faint 
light in the distance, a light that he he draw um, uh, or a light that he thinks looks like uh, vac- the light of a wax candle. But Martel says that uh, he describes a large fireball crashing into the ocean, and we have this <laughs> excellent animation of a object just swooping down and explode into the ocean. And uh, yeah, this differs quite a lot from <laughs> the narrative in both previous episode or and of course later episode and well what's actually in Columbus journal so I'm not sure where Martel get this but um, he needs to come up with some better proof and then we move on to something that we haven't really covered yet in the ancient alien show so we uh, zoom in on five bombers airplanes out on a training exercise and that all of a sudden they were gone and that the navy sent out a rescue and it disappeared under mysterious and the navy sent out a rescue but it mysteriously disappeared too even though all of these were highly skilled pilots and uh, Michael Barra claims that even the military find this awfully awfully suspicious and strange So let's have a little break here and go through what they have brought up here. So this is commonly known as the disappearance of Flight 19. And I wonder why they don't mention that this is the Flight 19. It's a quite famous, strange happening (laughs) story that's been repeated in books, movies, TV shows, you name it. So yes, it's quite famous, but... It is true that there were five bombers of the Grumman TBM Avengers models equipped with a single 14-cylinder engine and each plane carried about three crew members and, of course, the pilot. And these planes disappeared a few weeks before Christmas 1945. They were to complete a training mission called Navigation Problem Number 1 which included navigation, dropping a payload at the target, and returning to base, obviously. In total, the flight would have been covering some 585 kilometers. So not too big mission, and but again, it's a training mission. Even though the show seems to indicate the weather was clear, it was actually raining and winding, and the waves would have grew a bit larger, not that it probably would have affected the pilots that much. The weather conditions are described in the military reports as favorable. So even though it was bad weather, it was not bad enough to cancel the mission, which indicates that even more novice pilots should have been able to handle this weather. And it's good to get to know a little bit of the main characters, or main character maybe, so... Uh, Lieutenant Charles Taylor was to be the teacher for the mission and one of the students would be the flight leader. And Lieutenant Taylor did have quite a reputation in the military. He did have a act to get lost. While experienced, he was not uh, particularly great at being a pilot. Twice during the Pacific Theater during World War II, he had actually got lost and abandoned his plane. Uh, over open water twice that's not a great sign (laughs) to be honest i would not really have want to have that for a teacher anyway uh, for this exercise he showed up some 20 minutes late and was trying to you know get excuse from the exercise he was not in retrospect maybe he should have but yeah he comes off as a quite unprofessional character and a bit over confidence in his own skills and we actually do have both the recordings of the radio chatter and the transcript and we will actually listen to a reenactment of said flight in a short moment so everything seems to have gone just dandy fine until they dropped the payload and started to head back and over the Grand Bahamas, the student flight leader radioed. Uh, I don't know where we are. Uh, we must have got lost after the last turn. And that day, 
We have a senior flight instructor at Fort Lauderdale called Lieutenant R. Cox, who overheard this over the radio and tried to help. This is FG-74, plane boat calling powers. Please identify yourself so someone can help you. FG-28, this is FG-74, what is your problem? Lieutenant Taylor then chimes in, saying... Both my compasses are up and I'm trying to find Fort Lauderdale. Florida. I'm over land, but it's broken. I'm sure I'm in the Keys, but I don't know how far down, and I don't know how to get to Fort Lauderdale. Put the sun on your port wing, and you're in the Keys, and fly up to the coast until you get to Miami. Fort Lauderdale is 20 miles further, your first port off to Miami. The air station is directly on your left from the port. What is your present altitude? I will fly south and meet you. So that would mean that there were suddenly 300 kilometers southwest and not east of Florida. And the problems didn't stop here. If Taylor just had accepted the help that was offered to him, they would probably have made it back. I know where I am now. I'm at 2300 feet. Don't come after me. One of the other students then suggests that they should follow the protocol. So the protocol when you get lost during mission at Florida is to go just straight west instead. One of the planes in flight we went 270 degrees, we could hit land. We're heading uh, 0, 030 degrees north-northeast for 45 minutes. Then we will fly north to make sure we're not over the Gulf of Mexico. Damn it. If we could just fly west, we'll get home. Head west, damn it. Holding course 270 degrees, uh, we didn't go far enough east. We may as well just turn around and go east again. And we then have our final message coming in at 1820. All planes close up tight. We have to stitch unless landfall. Uh, when the first plane drops below 10 gallons, we all go down together. And after that, the radio went silent. And two planes were actually sent out to search for them. One of them had issues mid-flight and unfortunately exploded. The reason behind this is unclear still, mostly because they couldn't find the wreckage after but witnesses and the other planes saw what happened so we're quite sure that it exploded but there could have been a number of reasons behind it and the mysteries that we unfortunately won't know exactly which one of them but a group of flight 19 was also never fine which the show again mentioned but it's not that's surprising. We, it seems as they were heading straight east, basically out towards the Atlantic. And when things, we don't really know exactly where they went down. And even if we sort of knew, the ocean can carry things off, way off. So the chances of us locating the planes are quite slim, but not improbable at least but after the show has discussed the flight 19 we move on to speak with a bruce gernon who in 1970 reported a strange cloud with a vortex opening and swallow his plane and he saw flashes and there was strange gray electric fog and air traffic could not find the plane they claim and they, they start to talk about the general, general theory of relativity and gravitational pull and warp speed with the help of extra particles. And uh, Mr. Kassar claims that when you have a when you have a energy from a higher plane dimension, it will always show up as a vortex. Gateways are always in a vortex. So. Well, I couldn't really find much more than Jern's book on the whole thing. But their show claiming that Bermuda Triangles have wormholes that the aliens are using to travel intergalactic with. That's why things mysteriously disappear, because somehow we slip into these wormholes. But uh, Gernon came out on the other side of it, so to say, and... Apparently he had no memory on how he flew so long or how he got so close to his end destination. But we don't really need 
much more. He could have flown into a cloud in bad weather, but there's also this thing called highway hypnosis. Basically, you're going on the highway and, you know, it's soothing, calming. You hear the ending roaring and after a while you might, you know, lose track of time. Could have been what happened here. Unfortunately, uh, Mr. Gurnan don't have much evidence or anything else than his little story. And, of course, he makes references to Flight 19, but, again, we actually really know what happened to him. But uh, David Childress believed that the Bermuda Triangle is a portal. And then the show asked, well, if there's a portal in open water, might there be a land portal? So with that, we move on to northern Mexico's in the Caballos. And the show referenced this to Zona de Silencio, or Zona of Silence. Succulus comes in claiming that nothing works here, no cell phones or radios, compasses, uh, and compasses just spins. And let's break off here again. It's a strange claim since, well, both ranchers, researchers, and Ordinary people are living in the area. None of them seems to report issues with their cell services, compasses, or other electronics. And there's this really large research facility that, well, if the equipment would not work, would be rather useless to have in that area. Uh, and the locals there even have a name for the people who come there to see the Son of Silence. They simply call them the Soneros. I find it quite cute little bar there but and uh, some of the residents even trying to cater to that specific market because of course you can make business of it and why wouldn't they they have a bunch of gullible people stumbling upon their land and uh, trying to get to a place where their cell phone doesn't work Childress comes in and claiming that these there are strange rocks and mutated animals all over the area and I think Mr. Childress would need to come up with some evidence before we even trying to start to explain this. Um, this claim is repeated from a book written by uh, Gary Hunt, which is called Zone of Silence. That was released back in 1986. But no evidence have really come up so far to prove it, as I said. There's people living there, there's a huge research facility, none of them reporting strange animals or rocks for that matter. But the show wants the Son of Silence to be older than 1986. So the show referenced uh, Francisco Saravia in 1930, who was a Mexican pilot, I claim, that reports that his radio stopped working in the area. To be honest, I didn't find really much of anything about him, but we have a Ruben Uriarte, who um, claiming that this is Mexico's Bermuda Triangle, is located on the same parallel, 28th and 26th, which also connects it to the pyramids in Giza, or their anomalies in the pyramids maybe. Except if you have been listening or watched the show until <laughs> this point, uh, you will probably in realize that this isn't really correct. So the Pyramids of Giza is on the 29th parallel north. Again, that's not the same as 28 or 26 for that matter. And even in 2010, where this show released, it was something quite easy to look up. But Incheteinen seems to have this track record with especially the grids that they, it doesn't isn't laid out as they claim it is. And... We then hear from Professor Sarah Seeger again. I were a bit surprised that she was back for the second season, but she's talking that about an absolute proof, which is quite logical and fitting her track record, to be honest. And she then goes on that there's magnetic field various across the globe, which is correct to a few percent. Again, they're trying to make a connection between magnetism and an area. But a few percent difference is, is not really detectable on a larger area. And I even reached out to Professor Seeger here recently. And she 
told me I will probably write something longer about this, but um, she come on to the show, especially in season one, because the producer claimed it would be something different. So it would be 50% skeptics and 50% um, proponents of this theory. But as she realized after season one, um, they... Well, of course, it was more like 5% and some uh, creative cutting. So she tried to give responses, you know, within the same sentence. So they couldn't really quote mine as easily. But of course, they did that too. Uh, I, will put up, I will put up something longer about our conversation there. But yeah, she she was a bit quote-minded. And um, that's why we don't see her after season 3, for example. Anyway, uh, we then move on to the 1970s, July 11. The US military launched an Athena missile during a testing. It was supposed to land in the White Sand Range, but a mysterious force pulled it into the zone of silence. So this was actually a little bit interesting, since it actually did happen. Maybe not due to what the show claims, but... Yes, on July 11th, 1970, the US military did launch an Athena missile that was supposed to land in the White Sands test site. But, well, (laughs) it did overshoot a little bit and ended up in Mexico. I guess whoever had to make that call was none too happy. (laughs) Imagine if that happened today. Uh, Mexico seems see an unknown object coming across the border and, well, <laughs> enough of doomsday talk maybe. Well, after this, after this small, usually the story contains that it was a dirty bomb by the US military. Uh, the reason for this is unknown, it's just mentioned in some sources, not in this show, but I thought it was good to bring up that part too. Okay, enough. Uh, So instead of going out with this, the US Army seems to have tried to keep this on the download, uh, a secret, and hiring local guards, while a group of Americans dug up the missile and shipped it back to the States. But someone on the guard seems to have thought it would make great stuff for a mystery, so they of course started to talk about it. (laughs) And the myth seems to originate here somewhere. And then amplified, of course, in Hunt's book. And the ancient aliens claims that there's a huge number of meteorites that's crashing in the area. And Childress says that it probably have a stronger pull than a normal area. And Logan Hawks claiming that the magnetism in the area is stronger than normal. It isn't. We have world maps showing the magnetism around the globe. Usually this magnetism trick is proven by local rancheros by holding a compass to the zoneros, the visitors, and uh, where the compass is just spinning out of control. And if you see this, dear listener, it means that you're watching a magic trick. A real disturbance just makes the compass point at something other than north. And if you don't want to know how to do this magic trick, you can skip some 30 seconds ahead. (laughs) Okay, so the matrix itself is quite easy. I think you can figure it out by yourself. All you need is to magnetize maybe your ring or another object you can easily hide in the palm and then just move it behind the compass. That's it. (laughs) Uh, Quite easy thing to to do uh, with a little bit of practice. But I actually myself have encountered magnetic anomaly out on an excavation. So we were excavation a farming cane, uh, so basically it's stones that a farmer tossed on the side of the field uh, on Gotland. And beneath it we did find a previously unknown bronze grave. But uh, a little bit before that we, we noticed that at one part of the cairn our equipment didn't really work as expected. And... We also noticed that if we were close enough to this area, the compasses didn't point point north, it was pointing at this location. So we decided to start to excavate that part, and what we did uncover was not a mysterious alien artifact, unfortunately. It was kilos upon kilos of slag, 
So slag is what's left after iron work. So it seems as a smith or, well, uh, a smithy uh, discarded their old slag uh, in a pit <laughs> uh, under the cairn. And um, that was it. Uh, the large concentration of it was what basically threw our equipment off in a quite small area. I think it was maybe two, three meters maybe that was affected. But yeah, that was the mystery. It was nice to figure it out. We had our different theories, but none of us didn't really expect it to be slag. We all hoped for something <laughs> bigger or more interesting, maybe. I just want to check in and say hi and thank you for listening. If you have been meaning to but haven't, please leave a nice review. It will make it easier for new listeners to find the show and for us to grow and have more experts and more fun little recreations on the show. Just leave it on your favorite podcast player, of course. Apple Podcast is usually among the bigger ones, but anyone will do really. Enough of that, let's get back to the show. We then move uh, a bit north, just a tad, to be honest. So the show talks about 3,000 years ago and the uh, Anasazi, but then switches to 1054 CE, talking about a supernova that was visible and depicted by the Anasazi. I don't really understand why they have this portion. Maybe it's to, you know, fill time on the show. But the Anasazi, who is usually referred to as Ancestral Pueblen, is really referring to a few traditions as I've come to understand it. And the word Anasazi comes from the Navajo people who live in the territory today and would be translated to something similar to ancestors to our enemies or today is usually used as a synonym to ancient people in general. The show then described the contact between Maya and the ancestral Pueblans and... The show asking itself, did they meet in the zone of silence? And at 1431, we see something familiar to us from previous episode. We have Shaco Canyon. And were there contact between the ancestral Pueblans and the Mayan? Probably, as I've come to understand it at least. But they're talking about they should have met for some reason in the zone of silence because that was very an important a very important site for the Mayans and ancestral Pueblans. And we then have a Logan Hawks coming in to start to talk about the sky people in Mayan culture again. And we had them come up before and so far I have not been able to find it within the Mayan mythology myself or a few experts that I reached out to haven't either. Doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. But it means that the ancient alienists would need to maybe show their sources. It seems as a claim might be originating from a book from 1976 called Gods of Aquarius by a Brad Steiger. Other than that, in Maya mythology, mm, not much, not much. Eniason Martell comes in and claiming that these beings were tall, fair-skinned and white hair. And that don't really match with these dark and dark-haired people in the area. These beings are always reported as tall, pale-skinned, completely non-indigenous to the people that are dark-skinned, dark-haired in these South American regions. Does it match to South American gods? I mean, it's not really true and, to be frank, quite racist. (laughs) Even more so than they're usually going for. But the white god theory is something that popped up for real around the turn of 1900s, but it's been around and the conquistadors also spoke about this being a reason for their success, that um, these uh, dark-skinned people thought that we were gods. But we, we do understand today that this is pure caca, to be honest. But we should still look into this a bit more later on, but the ties to the Church of Latter-day Saints, or the Mormons, that you might call them, and ancient alien theorists are quite strong, to be honest. And it's not really that weird, because if you 
know a thing or two about the Mormon church and their stories, you might be familiar with uh, they believing that there's a lost tribe of Israel who came to America in wooden submarines. And when they got here, some of them turned evil and turned their skin dark and gave rise to the Native Americans and the rest of the population in Americas. That's why they would then remember people being white. But again, that's just to make Joseph Smith quite impressive lies, uh, more uh, believable. There wasn't really much of uh, white gods in South America or Mesoamerica or North America for that matter. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> and the show then goes on to describing a hundred meter wide UFO with bl- different blinking lights hovering over Caballos, which is a town near to the zone of silence. And again, they don't really show you pictures about it. They just telling you that witnesses witnesses it. <laughs> and Sukalasu. My dear Giorgio claims that uh, claiming that the magnetism in the area was used as a signpost for when the alien wants to come back. Because the aliens, as you know, can invent interstellar travel, but not GPSs or inter- interstellar GPSs or intergalactic Google Maps. Now that's far too advanced. It's better to use um, magnetism. For some reason, because that would be visible from the whole universe. That tiny, tiny, tiny little dot in the desert. And the narrator asked if there's other places with more physical evidence. I wonder that too. (laughs) So we go south this time. to Back to Lake Titicaca. A site that has mystified people. And the show goes on telling us that there's shamans making sacrifice at, at a wall. And this wall is and is known as the Puerta de Hayo Marca, or in English, Gates of the Gods. Expect, as you're familiar with the show, it's not, really. So if you would go and ask any scholar and ask for... Okay, a few might know what you're talking about, but um, general <laughs> scholars of South America and the Inca and the area around Lake Titicaca would just give you a blank stare, not really knowing what you're referring to. But if you, on the other hand, would say, do you know anything about Altarini? You would get more more of an informative <laughs> reaction. So it seems as a gate of the god is only used in new age circles, while if you're looking for publications, uh, scientific journals or scientific research, you want to search for Altarani, nothing else. Childress think that this looks like a giant gateway, and what we're looking at, yes, you have a carving in a quite flat mountain wall, so you have something that looks like it's supposed to be a frame around it, and then you have a T-shape in the entrance, or that looks like a portal. And it looks like a front of a temple or something like that. As I said, Childress think that this looks like a gateway, but it doesn't go anywhere, of course, since it's, you know, just a carved door into a mountainside. And Sukalos comes in and make a deal that this is on 5,000 feet, and it seems to have a square cut into it. And in the center, there's something that looks like a doorway. And Michael Barra claims that the native called this Gate of the Gods, but of course they doesn't really. Um, but <laughs> why would you cut a portal that doesn't go anywhere? There mis- must be a way through it. Okay, so to understand this site, we would need to talk a little bit about roads, actually. Uh, roads has been important in basically every empire since dawn of time or at least empires that uh, strive to be long-lasting and powerful and increase their reach. This include the Inca Empire, of course. They are quite famous for their roads. And along these Incan roads we have several mon- monuments and some of these are used as waymarks and could have also doubled as shrines, of course, but from the context that Altarine is in, it fits into a larger tra- tradition uh, along the Koyasayu road that passes near this. 
And it's also quite near another site called the Inca Share. You can actually, if you are at the Inca Share, just look straight at the Altarini. But why we understand that the monument is part of a larger ritual content, it does have a little mystery to it. And the mystery is not if it was used as an alien portal. No, it's more of when it was made. So it's not been thoroughly dated because the Surani ceramic is scattered across multiple periods. Again, uh, the Inca road system was used for quite some time and there's been activity in this area for even before that. Of course, we have Tiwanaku close by um, and the rest of it, of course. So people being here, of course, make the dating harder since we can't really date carved stone in that sense, unfortunately, today at least. But due to the fact the monument is partially unfinished, if we see if we look at the top of it, we can speculate at least that it's probably from around the Spanish contact period. But again, it's speculation they might have abandoned it for different reasons other than the Spanish conquest. But it would need some more research and it would be interesting to see what comes up. And for the New Age claims, it seems to originate with a... But for these New Age claims, it seems as they are originating with a José Luis Delgado Mamani, who stumbled across the site in the 1990s and started to, well, basically make things up after that. The show then goes on to claim that according to Inca legends, the first priest-king, Amaru Uru, is said to have traveled through this portal using a special object to activate the doorway, turning this solid rock into what's known as a stargate. Colonel Jack O'Neill, SG-1. So, we have gone so far that we've ended up with some bad sci-fi. <laughs> Alright then, let's... Let's start with the first priest king, according to the Inca legend. Again, you might uh, guess that the first king was not called Amaru Uru. It was uh, Mancho Zapac, who was the first Zapa Inca. And even if we look at the origin story and their foundational myth, realizing we... that, that again... Amaru Uru has nothing to do with it. This is not part of at least the accepted Inca legend. It might be some very, very local variation of it or more believable, maybe made up by an author who likes to make some more artistic uh, enhancement of his non-fiction books. <laughs> And Circulos then adds this supposed legend that there was supposed to be a golden disc that fell from the gods. And Michael Barrow shames in that this was witnessed by the shamans who reported it. And the narrator comes in and says that archaeologists who have looked at the portal have noticed that there's a hole in the center. It's speculated that if you put the golden disc in there the door would open just like a key. And from the research I've found so far from uh, archaeologists, it's they don't really talk about the hole in the center, as the show puts it, but that's because there's other unfinished things on the carving that might be more interesting to focus upon. But to be fair, when they show this in the show, it looks more as a part that's broke off during the carving phase than being a intentional carving to fit something to be honest that's my opinion yours might differ you're more than welcome to go have a look for yourself and well uh, send me an email and we can look into it a bit more coppens then claimed that only the people with this object could come near and talk to the god and sukala scoffs at the idea that this is a fantasy that everybody is trying to tell him he's sure that the disc was probably some device that would travel a person to another plane and according to the local legends the priest was known as space brothers again like the star people space brothers doesn't really seem to be a thing except for in new age 
books. We then have George Luis Delgado Mamani, who talks about the Shakan and that it incorporates a few constellations that the Elder says is a space bridge to the brothers. And the Shakana is a bit of a controversial item, or at least how it's presented within the New Age circle. So the Shakana is usually referring to the Inca cross. And today many thinks that, or scholar, <laughs> seems to think that this is an invented tradition. We might have to look into this more with a South American expert, but... From what I gathered, it's become a bit of a hodgepodge between a different New Age belief and belief that actually they are connected to the Inca. And the Andean cross or the Inca cross is a thing, but not really as it's depicted in the Shakana maybe. But that's a different story that we probably should look into later on. And then they move on to talk if the portal could lead to a wormhole. And we have uh, Dr. Thomas Vallone who trying to explain the concept of wormholes and yeah the wormholes are part of uh, theoretical physics. There's many different versions of them and it's a theoretical concept. It's not really moved into be a one accepted hypothesis but there's multiple different theories regarding them and if they're travelable or not and to what extent and we have Sarah Seeger coming in here Professor Seeger um, saying Dimensions aren't really considered something to travel along but dimensions are directions and if you could somehow travel along these other dimensions it would take you somewhere else entirely and it seems as she's actually trying to say something that's part of a larger conversation, but is artistically cut here, so to say. And the show goes on to say that Peru is a high point for UFO, and Childress brings up the UFOs out of water again, because that's his thing, basically. And they again bring up this concept of white or tall, fair-skinned uh, people and compare it to the dark brown dark haired indigenous people and they start to talk about teleportation as if it would help them with this stargate somehow and they talk about uh, experiment at the Ma Max Planck uh, Institute where they're, they actually have been teleported subatomic particles from one spot to another but it's not really as a show present you know the Star Trek concept of teleportation where you just one being moves from one place to another they basically copying the subatomic particles and then print them at another spot and again it's really really small particles we're talking about here and after this the show switch to a completely different gear and you will find out exactly what gear that is after a short break So we make a skip and a jump 850 miles north to a plateau with high magnetics and is a holy place for the Inca people. And Coppens come in saying that there's weird energy and people go there and have and go there and experience weird energy pet. And we meet uh, Kathy Dory who says that local people say this is a place of gods, wizards and genies and there's a special frequency here. And... The show comes in saying most geologists, but not all apparently, uh, think that these rocks are naturally formed. Some, but some consider them to be carvings from an ancient civilization. And we have Coppens that says that this is a place where stones are not just stones. Okay, what <laughs> if it's not stones? What are they then? Are you? We have a word for statues, you know. Anyway. Could this be a sculpture park made by people for over 100,000 years ago? And they talk about a Daniel Russo who made his claim back in 1952. And Dory claims it's some 100 carvings and... Well, this is an audio medium. 
But the narrator comes in and says that people see animals and people. And they start to show you, you know, pictures of the stones there. Saying people see things that's not at home in the area. And they proceed to adding lines on the stones. And of course text on what it depicts. So with the text and newly added lines you start to see figures. Just as Oberskuben or the face of Mars, uh, Mars, and to be frank, there's <laughs> nothing there. It's it's basically Paradola and nothing more. But the first figure is an African queen, and then they claim it's a Egyptian god, and they show another stone, and they fill out with the lines and say this is a tower from ancient Egypt, and then this stone is a camel, and this is a western female face and a quite racist middle eastern face but again it's basically paradox and paradox if you haven't heard about it before it's the phenomenon to give meaning to random and often visual stimuli so this is the word for when you see look at the clouds and you think that one looks like an elephant or you see jesus face on a toast or well as i mentioned the face on a low resolution picture of a hill on Mars. It's nothing strange. What is, well, maybe the mystery is that we are not exactly sure why we see these type of things, uh, pictures or especially faces in um, random blots on papers or, you know, wherever. Uh, but it's interesting, but it stops there, especially for here. So local legends they talk about again, again without really giving any reference to where these local legends come from. But they teach, but they talk about Viracocha and well, that's basically the creator gods and the conquistadors heard that he turned people to stone here. I'm not really sure where that comes from. Maybe the same place as Altareni. But the show claims that this site, Markavasi, predates the Inca. And that's according to the show. And Daniel Russo claims that the word means two-story house. There are some ruins in the area, but I couldn't really find much on them. Doesn't mean that they're nothing, but apparently not. They can, could be later, probably. Anyway, if you know what these ruins are, for real, <laughs> with some scientific papers, please send them to me. But Jason Martell if, asks if this is the place of a lost civilization, and he believes it's too. And David Russo claimed that this civilization was named Masma, where he gets this from. The show doesn't tell you. I think he made it up, but anyway. We have Robert M. Scott, the geologist, or maybe that's the only geologist that thought that this wasn't just rocks. Um, explains things. <laughs> Scotch say that uh, the Masma people were an ancient culture that traveled worldwide and uh, that the uh, Markavasi is proof of that. And then the show asked if the show, the civilization was wiped out by the giant flood. And Markavasi think it's weird that they were 12,000 feet up now because the flood might not reach that high. I don't know <laughs> what really. So basically Michael Barra thinks that they are the site is this high up because when the water receding it was left open. But again, doesn't really make sense from <laughs> the story. Yeah, it doesn't have to make sense, I guess. But again, so these statues as they want to call them, or paradolia as we other call them, are the evidence that the there was A, as an ancient civilization, and B, that they travel around the globe, because how would they other be able to carve this before or after, or I'm not really sure about when. <laughs> and then, of course, they say there's a lot of UFO sightings here, again, without showing any great proof of it. And from the Markavasi, that was basically Paradoila and nothing, we move on to the world grid. So according to ancient alien theorists, all these places are connected by a grid of invisible energies. And children say that they are connected in some places in a big vortex area. 
And Bayer claims that the theory comes from an era when we actually understood science, mathematics, nature and geometry. came from a time when we really understood the harmony between nature and geometry and science and mathematics. And they talk about aboriginals who falling dreaming tracks and that they can see the lines. And Childress says the Chinese can see dragon lines because that's not really racist at all. <laughs> Things we are supposed to be from these dragon lines or energy lines. And then they move on to talk about the Pythagorean school of thought and that Plato was the most famous one. Well, according to the show at least. Talking about, uh, about Earth being a geometric shape and the school of uh, Pythagoras claim that everything is made up of geometric forms. <laughs> okay, um, Plato does mention different concepts from the Pythagorean school, but it doesn't seem as he's from his text at least as he's been a subscriber to the theory or a member or a proponent of the school. But yes, he mentioned different concepts from the Pythagorean school and they did not really believe that everything is made up from geometric forms in that sense but yes geometry was an important part of their philosophy and according to a French UFO guy named Aimee Michael who mapped all the UFO sightings up to uh, since Roswell says that they always occur on these grid lines and they show you a map of these sightings and a big chunk of them are not lined up with the grid. <laughs> it's their show, they can show you whatever they want, but uh, alright. And then they move on to say that P the aliens show people how to build a monument on this grid so they could focus these vortexes. Uh, and this is called geomancy. Or nothing, it's called nothing. <laughs> and children say that these st structures help to you know, increase the pull of this grid, just like acupuncture. And we then have Van Daniken making his first appearance on this show. So Van Daniken, he says that some lines go from England to Italy. So if you're not familiar with ley lines, this is a concept invented by uh, Alfred Watkins, who thought that if you made a line between different ancient sites, you would be able to find ancient trade routes, more or less. This then grew to a more esoteric level and is basically bunk. <laughs> so these ley lines are really straight and if they are, it's due to the number of ancient sites to choose from basically, since they don't really need to be connected more than as points on a map. It's not that they need to have a special you know, time or from a different period. You can just select whatever ancient site you want and then put it put a line between it and say, oh, look, there's a ley line. Yeah. <laughs> and we have Giorgio coming, claiming that there's towns across a huge line from England down to Italy, showing how advanced this was. And Van, Van Daniken then comes in claiming that the roots of all these little villages and towns, their names all have the same root, and that root is the word for star. So let's see. On the screen, they show Calais, Montalix, Montalay, Lealais, Anson, Asier, Alice, Lealex, Vercelli, Alzano, Calaisi, and Cales. So the last few there were Italy. I will put them up in the show notes because. I think my pronunciation of these <laughs> French little towns might have driven a French person insane. But dear listener, do you think that these cities or towns or villages lines up as neatly as the show presented to be? If you're guessing that it goes horrible poor, you are correct. I could, even, could not even find this town and I had help from French people natives trying to locate as many as possible we could not uh, we tried old maps new maps google maps a couple of maps and it's not a great sign for the show but from the ones we have it doesn't really add up let's start with the first one or it doesn't add up neither in a straight line even if we just took the ones we could actually find and it didn't line up it was crooked and the line went a little bit here and a little bit there 
but okay, the line isn't straight, but somewhat at least. The names must be right, right? Eh, no. Let's start with the first town, Calais. So Calais stands for a Latin word for a Gaulish tribe called Calitos. So no star. Calitos is not a name for a star. Uh, and well, the word for star in French is uh, Etoile. So we might rule out for all these towns that it's the root for star. And yeah, my French speaking contacts laughed about it. <laughs> so nothing about star, but some of them are similar to each other. And Van Daniken then claims that the aliens force the villagers to name these villages after stars and they weren't allowed to change it for ever basically and somebody told them and use the word star why? for because your village we need mysteries for eternity to don't change really it. get to know these aliens because they can't you know leave us a proper note or something golden disc i don't know uh, no they leave strange mysteries that isn't mysteries if you don't make them up <laughs> and that was that for being the premiere of the season i thought it be quite weak as you noticed the um, well, last the two mysteries wasn't really mysteries at all it was just fantasy it wasn't really that interesting the zone of silence is a big hunk of nothing the bermuda triangle is quite old and stale to be honest and well except for the altarini uh, portal I didn't find much interesting. Uh, it was interesting to read about the religious context on Inca Road, though. That was nice, but the rest, eh, uh, very weak. The Markavasi was, of course, the worst, but yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, remember to leave a positive review anywhere you can, such as iTunes, Spotify, or even to your friend at the trench. I would also recommend you to visit diggingupanus.com where you find more info about me and the podcast. And you can find me, of course, on most social media sites. And if you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or you want to write an email in all caps, you can find my contact info at the website. And on our website, you will also find the sources and resources used to create this podcast. You will often also find further reading suggestions if you want to learn more about the subjects we bring up. And the intro music was created by Alexander Nakarada. And from this episode we also have a new fantastic outro. A band called Tralskruv will sing us out with their song Tinfoil Hat. Links to both these artists will be found in the show notes. I also want to give a huge thanks to Martin, who played the role of Unnamed Private, and Christian, who played Lieutenant Cox, and Matthias, who played Lieutenant Taylor. Thank you guys for your excellent recreation of the Flight 19 radio chatter. That's all. Until next time, keep shoveling that science. Illuminati som styr våran jord Tillsammans med människor, reptiler, sanna mina ord Sanna För att inte öka deras imperium När de ser mänsklighet i kät Innan de slussas ut från Norge 
fantasi Att aliens manipulerar oss med telepati Ni tycker att jag redan är besatt Men jag skyddar mig för jag har foliehand Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there. 